Hello, and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country. I'm Anthony Flacavento, your host, and I am here today with a, a wonderful guest who's going to help us explore a part of the question of why we're so divided and how we overcome that through the media. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Lark. Lark is the founder and I think just recently retired executive director of PNS, the Public News Service. They are bringing stories of interest, stories with a a literally progressive bent to millions upon millions of people across the country. So, Lark, thank you so much for joining me on Two Worlds, One Country. Thanks for inviting me, Anthony. It's a pleasure to, to be here and speak with you. Great, great. So I hope we have a little time at the end to talk about um, what you're doing for your next venture, but I'm not sure because there's so much to talk about the how and the why and the what of, of what you've been doing the last almost three decades. So why don't we begin with just a real short um, synopsis of your upbringing, and then we'll kind of move into a little bit about the how and why you got into the media business and then this particular kind of media. Absolutely. And I just want to say that that uh, one could be forgiving for giving me all kinds of titles because it has been so long. So um, I, 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 at the end, we had enough staff that I could just be publisher. Okay. Amen to that. That was very exciting. Great. Um, so in brief, I love the title of your show because I was really born in, on a bridge, right? Hmm. I was born and brought up between many different worlds, and it gave me a different view so that when I, I kind of did my, my career backward, I started in New York, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and um, Now, were you a, were you a native New Yorker, or did you go to no, New York? No, no. Okay. I was born in Hollywood, California. Wow. I was probably, I pro- was probably taken to a small town in Idaho when I was, I don't know, a month old or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so for the first 18 years of my life, I spent winters in a in what became known as Topanga Canyon and summers in a small town in Idaho with literally an outhouse and one spigot of, of cold running water outside. So, but it was my heaven. Mm-hmm. Growing up, you know, in the winters in, in California, Idaho is what kept me sane. Wow. It, it kept me able to go on. Anyway, I left home. I lived in Paris as an au pair for a year. I went to Israel to, you know, because I had fantasies of what socialist life on a kibbutz was like. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Um, My dad was an artist. Imagine this, a Catholic, Republican, Bohemian artist (laughs) who said, break all the rules except for um, why don't you just get a job at the post office because then you'll be secure (laughs) the rest of your life. I love that. I love that. That's And uh, my mother, a devout, very puritanical really catholic um i don't think they voted outside of the republican party until maybe clinton and Mm. until their kids got old enough for them to be a little more forgiving so this this dichotomy and everywhere i lived i in you know topanga was looked down on in malibu right with the 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 catholic school that our parents struggled to send us to and i didn't really realize the people I grew up with were these kind of people in the industry, right? Who who were sort of powerful people. I thought the people in Idaho were the cool people. Mm. Those were the people that I mm. wanted to hang out with. 
but even in Idaho, I would be introduced as my friend. She's from California, but she's not really California. Like she's really one of us. <laughs> right. Don't treat right, her like right, a right, California. Right. Yeah. Right. And then when I went to school in Berkeley, finally, um, they there was this sort of disdainful opinion of Southern Californians. Right. And then when I was, I, I remember, I'll never forget in um, my first week in a New York newsroom. And someone didn't like what I did. And she screamed across the newsroom, you're so stupid. Only a Californian could be as stupid as you. Oh, my God. Right. And we had a little talk in the bathroom after that. We, we became good friends and colleagues. <laughs> but it cracked me up somehow because I was brought up in so many areas. When people would put down another area, it made me laugh. It was it was more like you guys have no idea what you're talking about. You yeah. just have no idea. That's so great. And it's so interesting and kind of helpful to hear that um, it ain't just country folks. It isn't just Appalachians. It isn't just hillbillies or rednecks that are looked down on, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I guess we're capable of looking down at anybody that's just from a place a little different um, and, and less than what we think it ought to be. That's really something. So you, yeah. so you went to New York and you were in a newsroom there. What Tell us about that. Long story, but I ended up in a New York newsroom, which is probably where I needed to be all the time, right? But I didn't come from that kind of background that would steer me there. So I started as administrative assistant in what became Reuters Television. And I was mm. actually the coordinator that helped the first Reuters print people um, get acclimatized to TV. Wow. So Reuters bought us and then built. I had languages on my side, right? And that's what got me in. I'm sorry, excuse me. You said that you had languages on your side. Do you mean that you spoke different languages? Yes, or what you, okay. yes. And in an international newsroom, that's that's valuable. For right? sure. And then there, people, they said, okay, Lark, we want you to do this. So I did it. I did that. And I ended up working pretty much every position in the newsroom. And I was getting to that place in New York, they call it a news nun, you <laughs> know, where you, you really have no life outside of the newsroom. And if you stay... Uh, it won't be a pretty sight unless you want to be a news nun. And I did not, you know, having <laughs> 12 years of Catholic schooling, I didn't want to be a nun in any way, shape or form. Right, right, um, right. So I went freelance and then I got a job with Channel One back in Hollywood. It was my first experience of not having the ivory tower separation of journalism and advertising such that, it, you know, you know, you will do this story because... A major corporation wants you to do this story, and I was shocked and mm. um, and and heartbroken, really. And mm. that did not last long. They didn't like me either, because uh, I would say, "You can't do this, people." Mm -hmm. um, and then I I dropped out. I went to Idaho to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and I plugged in and I went to learn radio at the local public radio station because. Obviously, I came from TV. I felt a calling. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of sprawl going on and these fights between the environmentalists and the real estate developer people. And I thought, this is no good. I come from a sprawl area. Idaho has been my salvation. I need to do something. So um, with a couple other folks, we started a nonprofit to bring in alternatives to urban sprawl called a livable community group. And we brought in wonderful um, designers, architects, uh, urban planners, people that could say, oh, Boise, Idaho, you could do this a little differently if you want it. Mm -hmm. and, and that, because I was new, no one hated me, right? And so I could get the real estate and the bankers and the developers and the conservation, I could get them all together uh, and, and city, city officials. 
So that worked really well, but I ran out of money. Yeah, as, and, those, as um, those groups so often do. What What's the time frame on that? That would have been the, like, 94-ish. Okay, all right. 94, right. 95-ish. Yeah, okay. And then, um, and I volunteered. I helped lots of different nonprofits, things I could not have done as a journalist, right? And so then when I ran out of money, I had been exposed at the public radio. I had seen that there was a, there was a Republican Capitol State House news service funded by taxpayers hmm. that was unabashedly a Republican hmm. State House news service. And there was at the time Senator Larry Craig, who had, uh, you know, famous for a toe tapping incident in a bathroom in Minnesota. But he he had this incredibly slick PR, English and Spanish, video, audio. Monsanto, when they would do um, a, a, an event, they would they would send like three or four little tiny stories at a time, right? They knew exactly what news outlets needed. And uh, in print, the kind of voices that I would like to hear, they would, if they were included at all, they would be the last paragraph of the last column. And I, I could not stand the injustice, the disparity. I could not stand it mm -hmm. anymore. And so I thought, okay, and I ran out of money. So what, what can I do? What I know how to do, which is a news service that serves everybody. And so I went to a nonprofit and um, and said, would you fund me and bless them? They said yes. And then it grew from there. And that's the launch of, of public news service you're talking that's about. That's the launch and, of public, public and news And the year service. was? 96. 1996. Okay. So I want to talk about what PNS does because um, a lot of folks um, that I talk to are, are not familiar with it, more and more are becoming, but, and it's a really interesting model. But before that, I know that along the way, as you were picking up all these different experiences in journalism and otherwise, you develop an approach to journalism that you call deep balance. And would you say a little bit about that? Because I'm sure that is insinuated throughout uh, PNS and the way they do things. So tell us about what that means. Thank you. And I, I know that the name dates me a little bit because remember when deep ecology was a big yes, thing? I do. So I, I would like us to look more uh, deeply at the term balance and what we mean and getting away from the he said, she said coverage that I think has so damaged our populace. So the this came about really from some some things I was learning in business, running a small business, having no experience in business before, right? Mm -hmm. um, my dad was an artist, an art teacher. So I had to learn a lot. I learned lessons from HR, like the DISC profile to find out about personalities. And then there was um, negotiation and, and peacemaking strategies from Barry Johnson called Polarity Management. And then George Lakoff, do you remember, came with his oh, yeah. brilliant analysis of the nurturing versus the strict and how that plays out in our politics. And I still think it has a lot of resonance. And I put those all together and thought, how about if we see the polarities in ourselves and in our, our colleagues and in our families and our friends, and if you're a nonprofit on your board, look at those conflicts and see how you could resolve those and how you could talk about conflicts and differences in a different way. The reality is we do perceive differently <clears throat> and people don't take that into account enough in when they're having conflict with anybody. So I brought one of those exercises and trainers, Patty Beach and some others, 
that would, um, first of all, help people understand where they fall on some of these polarities that they may not recognize, right? Like some conflicts, I like to do things fast and you like to do them slow. I am, I like to break rules and maybe someone else likes to follow rules. And the point is you need everybody. You need all these skills to balance each other out. So then you add the lake off analysis and you say, okay, most, most problems have some kind of social problems, have some kind of polarity between collective responsibility and individual responsibility. And how do we, um, you know, how do we bring that lens then to journalism? How does that help us realize this person that seems so illogical is not illogical? typically. How can we understand how their brain is working, what their values are, and come to some kind of authentic respect? Because it doesn't work if it's not authentic, if it's just messaging and framing. Right, right. Like listening. There's like listening because you truly want to understand and learn from the other person. And then there's listening that's sort of superficial because you've been told you should listen. Um, similar thing. So I want to segue to PNS, and I'm guessing that this idea of training journalists to see the complexity and not sort of pick sides or uh, deeply oversimplify things is part of the founding philosophy of PNS. Tell us a little bit, just right now, a brief description of what public news service does. Like how, how does it function as a media entity? First of all, number one, right? Raise money. Raise money to pay for the journalists. And that's from a from over the years, you know, we've got five different funding streams. Uh, but the primary focus is sliding scale memberships from nonprofits who want to make sure that somebody is in their community watching these issues, who understand that they can fund a beat, but they can't control it, that we want to engage with them, we want them to help us, but they can't control it. And over the years, there have been some some organizations that we've discovered they can't they can't do that. They really can't. Mm -hmm. But over the years, we've also, I think, had a hand in educating folks and educating foundations, too, because a lot of this was uh, really radical at that time. Right. And uh, news was funded by advertising, period, except for NPR and PBS. And uh, to go to to advocates and say, can you please throw in at the time it was a thousand bucks a year? Um, it, it took a lot of education. And and I'm I think we have helped over the years, the foundation. So now I would say it's it's a very robust funding environment. A lot of the foundations have stepped up. Media impact funders started by Vince Stelle uh, was has been an incredible force, but there are so many now that weren't there. And I have to say also in this bridging environment, I think finally, I, I don't want to fall into the labels, right, of the elites, right. <laughs> but I would say that finally across the country, people have woken up to some of these chasms of understanding and the bridging movement now is so robust. Hundreds of efforts that weren't there, even, you know, 10 years ago, they weren't there. Right, right. And you're not talking now just about media. You're talking just b more broadly about trying to bridge the divide. So so you're getting money, but one of the first innovations is instead of relying on advertising or kind of a sugar daddy, you're going to groups that have a stake in their community or in a stake in the nation, and they provide part of the foundation of your funding. Tell us what they're funding. Like, what does PNS do? So they're funding journalists primarily, right? They're funding journalists to be in a community, 
to look at all the issues that are going on and find the voices that could be helpful that are not being included or in terms of angle perspectives that are not being included that could be helpful. So early on, we started really looking for collaborative ventures, places where um, resource extraction people and conservationists were actually maybe trying to work together to, to lift up those issues. Um, and also just the, the, the voices that had been historically marginalized, like I said, the ones that were, you know, the last paragraph of the last right. column. Of, I wanted other media outlets to at least have the option, at least know that you're, you're getting all this stuff from one side, very limited, at least have these other voices so you could honestly be quote unquote balanced, you know, or you could you could have a choice. And over time, I think that that sensitized a lot of the media gatekeepers, a lot of the news directors and the people in the bowels of all those local stations. It sensitized them to issues that they perhaps would not have felt comfortable covering. Like when we started LGBTQ+, nobody would take those stories in Idaho, right? Mm -hmm. You know, fast forward a year or two, and they're taking those stories the way they would any other story. The idea was with a little amount of resources, how could you stretch them as far as possible and fill this gap to make it easy for all easier for all the media to have a choice and balance the field that way? And so that that balancing of the field in that sense, filling that gap, you have a particular focus on radio, not an exclusive one because you do print stuff and TV. And first of all, am I right about that? Would you say radio is kind of your 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 lead. So let's return to the radio element since that's been your your strong suit. Um, I remember talking to your colleague Josh, who is I think taking over now as uh, the head of PNS, and he was explaining to me that you are in on a on a relatively regular basis. I should say PNS is in. Is it over a thousand rural radio stations? Is that correct? I I, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but yeah. I would say um, over time, at the highest, maybe four thousand. But that's not just rural; that's that's suburban. That, that's everybody. And some urban uh, stations also. But, but so it has been. It has been pretty big. Right, and and part of the marvel of it. I mean, I, I do these rural urban divide trainings, and lots of other things with primarily a kind of liberal progressive type audience. And almost invariably, somebody says, yeah, but what do we do about Fox? What do we do about Breitbart? What do we do about the fact that they dominate us? And they do dominate us. And I invariably, as part of my answer, talk about PNS because part of what you've been able to do, they're not all rural radio stations, but a pretty sizable chunk of them are conservative talk radio where your progressive-leaning story will pop up somewhere between Sean – Hannity and Glenn Beck or something like that. Um, if I'm characterizing that wrong, please correct me. But uh, is how did you do that? Because the notion that a lot of people have is, oh, they would never run a story that in any way has kind of a positive spin about things we can do together. So how did you make that happen? I'm thinking my, my first thought was the quote from Buckminster Fuller. Mm-hmm. If you want to fight, I, I don't ha- You can maybe correct me if I don't have it right, but you know, you want to fight something, just make an alternative. I think that it's the way that you cover issues Mm -hmm. and giving people a smorgasbord. So first you find out what their needs are, right? And then you, you give them what they need. You give them what would make their lives easier. And along with the mac and cheese, 
you give him some broccoli. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think it was those two things that, that enabled us to be useful to people that might not otherwise have given those stories a shot. And I'm not saying every conservative station used every story that we, you know, that when we were talking about reproductive freedom, um, but at least for the journalists in the bowels of those stations, if their owner had a problem or they were getting criticized from their audience, at least they could say, hey, boss, I'm just balancing the debate and it was free. So you provide it for free because you pay the journalists through the other mechanisms, including the partnerships with with nonprofits and foundations. And then the radio stations, for the most part, take what you offer because they need to fill airtime because you reliably provide that. Is that am I on the right track here? Yes. And the difference is in print paper. If you don't have enough advertising, your issue is just smaller. Mm -hmm. But with broadcast, your holes are the same amount of length, Mm, right? So some days you're really desperate to fill those holes Mm -hmm. and you're looking for anything. And if you only have something that's that kind of lays out one side, you're going to use it. And remember the Telecommunication Act of 1996 that deregulated. So already at that time, all these stations were, were no longer plump. You know, they they were fighting for fax paper and for um, paper clips. And we knew this because we hired journalists from these areas and they'd mm. say, our station will never, never, never pay. But if mm. it's free, okay. If it's good, high quality, we trust you and it's free and it's consistent. And you're not a single note. You're not harping on one thing, right. but you're giving us a smorgasbord. So some stations may want take your daughter to work day, whereas others are going to go for a more edgy story that is is really pushing the envelope, which is where we want to go. Yeah, but we also yeah. want to meet people where they are. Right, and, and that's that's a, a, ba- a balance that we all kind of struggle to to find, in, both in daily interactions and in more deliberate actions. So I'm recalling one story, and I don't remember why this one popped up in my mind, but it was at the time that either the infrastructure bill or the American Rescue American Rescue Plan Act, and anyway, one of those, the story focused on local farmers. It was it was done in a midwestern context. Might have been Minnesota, might have been Wisconsin, and and what the story did, and and the versions that I heard were I think a, a thirty second and a sixty second version on radio. What they did was they they started with the local reality about such and such related to farmers that was, I think, helping to support some infrastructure they needed and then kind of zoomed out to talk about how the newly passed federal law was making that possible with funding. It was a progressive message without the normal trapings of progressivism. There was no mention of AOC or Bernie, the blah, blah, blah. It was just a story about working together to help local people. So I'm, I'm not getting the details right, but I'm going to ask you if that's kind of a typical story. I know there's a wide range. And also, because we're, we're almost out of time already, to maybe give me another different kind of example of, of the type of story that you put out there that is picked up in these stations. I would say first, that is typical. Okay. So, so you know, we're, we're often look, looking to localize a story. So, so take some national policy and then see how it's working out. Alternately, take some local thing and then blow it out to connect it to the trends. Mm. So, right, remember I learned to write, this story has to work for Israel and Libya. 
Mm -hmm. right? So it's just the facts, but in hopefully an integrated way so that people's nervous systems aren't immediately triggered and they can, and they can hear, oh, 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 so that's how that works together. And that's how these things without sounding wonky. And you have to do that in a minute 15 or 45 seconds. It's, it's, it's quite a skill. And honestly, I didn't appreciate it until I hired print people thinking, oh, they're so much better trained and better than I, but the print people had trouble learning to write like the, the opposite of their, you know, pyramid style, just right. like get me the lead in, in line one. Yeah, if you have um, another example that just, you know, it can be anything to just give our listeners a, a fuller understanding. Okay, so I remember, I remember once dead of summer and I had some funding to cover river issues and um, I saw a national report on drowning deaths. Hmm. And so I called the local, you know, some river group and said, hey, I think there's a great opportunity to talk about rivers here. And the response was, what are you talking about, drowning deaths? Um, And I was able to say, well, guys, look at your negatives. Your negatives are that all you care about are wildlife. You don't care about people. And also, isn't there a huge industry in your state for whitewater rafting? And people do die in Mm -hmm. whitewater rafting. And that's your best bet to get the public to understand why they might care about a river. And then the penny dropped and the source said, oh, oh, that's a great idea. Sure, I'll talk with you. Wow, that's so interesting. So something that's kind of a more typical news item because it involves death and destruction, (laughs) you managed to make the connection to a much broader question of rivers and conservation and river health and 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 recreational economic opportunities all sort of springing from this one little um, more normal news item that's really fascinating so I want to I'm unfortunately we do need to bring it to a close but I do still have one or two more questions the first is do you have any sense at all anecdotal or data-based that your presence is making a difference to the listening audience? Is there any way to tell that people who maybe otherwise are getting a fairly steady diet of of Hannity or Coulter or whomever are now a little more open to some of the same ideas and values? Yes, and it's hard to be succinct, but it, it costs a lot of money to, to get some of this data, but right. we did spring for it, hire some researchers, and they found that over four election cycles where there had been uh, enough measures on issues that we covered and measures that over the years that there was a uh, what is it Cor- not correlate a significant a significant statistically significant yeah mm-hmm. yes yeah. there was a statistically significant correlation between the number of stories we had done and the movement of the electoral outcomes so in other words the researchers looked at um, a range of issues that PNS through these um, local radio stations had engaged with. And they found that people's positions or views on them changed and presumably as in partly as a result of the coverage that you gave to it. I sort of recoil from saying it's because of our coverage. Sure. Because I know that if the activists had not, if the organizers and the people locally doing the work had not been active, we could not have reported on those things. Right. And that would, it's, it's, it's working together where you have an engaged, organized community and you have journalists that can be there 
that makes, I think, a huge difference. I would say um, I worked on farm worker minimum wage in Idaho for five years. I did 48 stories. Wow. And in the fifth year, it passed. Mm. But the activists had done everything in, under the sun. To, and, and finally, but that's five years at least. Um, but it's, it, it, it all works together. Yeah, I mean, it's humble and noble of you to to put that in the, that context, to say it was the activists on the ground as much as anything. And no doubt that's true. But as somebody who's been an activist on the ground on a range of different issues, the one thing that we all have in common is we long for better and more media coverage. So the fact that you're lifting them up and lifting them up in a way that's taking into consideration the listeners, you're not you're not shoving it down their throats. You're not smacking them up the side of the head. You're doing it in in a context that they can maybe open their open the door and listen to. That's huge. And I'm sure every activist there would, would give you a lot of creds for that. That was my mission, right? Public News Service, I believe, is always looking for new partners in, across the country, the partners that will both help provide some of the funding, which is scaled to their capacity, but also partners who will help surface the stories, right? Absolutely. So, so how would they do that? Website, www.publicnewsservice.org, but also um, email outreach at publicnewsservice.org. So you've been listening to Lark and you've been hearing this program on WEHC-FM and WISC-FM. This is Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento. Lark, thanks so much. Thank you, Anthony. What a pleasure.